strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome. Welcome to my study. Uh, over here. Oh, I do apologize for the darkness. It's for the books, I'm afraid. Some are very rare and old, and on such a sunny day, well, hot sun is no friend to old books, if you know what I mean. Nor to me, if truth be told. But please, please, have a seat. I'm sure your eyes will adjust. Now, over there, you may notice a tall, lanky figure emerging from the shadows. That is Wilkinson, my domestic. He will be reading some of our quoted passages here tonight. Uh, he has such a lovely, rich voice. Pleased to make your acquaintance, and thank you, sir. You'll notice Wilkinson is dressed to reflect the gaiety of the season, all in green. It's actually a new suit I had made for him for the month of May, though he's only just put it on today. Green's almost too prosaic a word for it. What would you call it, Wilkinson? The green, sir? Yes, sort of a forest green. <sighs> well, it's perhaps forest. Or Kelly, maybe more like Kelly green? Is there a green with the word leprechaun? Leprechaun green? I suppose Kelly is already Irish, but it feels specifically leprechaun, you know, in that way, sprightly, playful. Yes, it actually does. It feels very celebratory. I don't think I've seen you in any color but black or gray. They did a good job copying the design, though. It got it all right down to the tights. You know, I wasn't sure about the piping or the tassels, but that's how it was in the book. It's, it's not too much, is it? I'm sure it's a faithful copy. It's really just the color that makes me think of leprechauns. The design is purely Italian. The tailor had nothing to go on but a color plate I sent from an old volume on historic costume. It was... A picture showing the height of courtly fashion in 18th century Verona. I'm not sure about the tassels, but Wilkinson seems to like it. In any case, we have a podcast to do. Uh, Wilkinson, your notes all in order? Certainly, sir. Excellent. Let's get going then. Episode 3... Loudly sing Cuckoo. For those who haven't tuned in before, I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and as I was saying, quoted material is provided by Wilkinson here. Our topic is generally the intersection and intertwining of folklore with the horror genre or sometimes horrific history. Um, 
I started all this as a way to expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, as well as topics I'm researching for a new book along similar lines. Now, a preeminent example of the folk horror genre, and one to which we will surely return on occasion, is the 1973 British film The Wicker Man, which happens to be set on May Day or Beltane. Its story, of course, follows one Sergeant Howie, who arrives at a remote Hebridean island to investigate the case of a missing girl. He soon discovers that residents of this place called Summer Isle have abandoned the Christian faith in favor of a revived form of Celtic paganism. The fate of the missing girl appears to be related to these practices, though not as Howie tragically discovers in the film's grisly ending. Curious counterpoint to the ghastly deed unfolding in the final scene, the villagers of Summer Isle sing a rather cheery song associated with the coming of summer, for which Beltane in the Celtic calendar is the first day. The song was not an original composition for the film, but rather a rendering of an actual 13th century song called Summer is a Coming In. That's uh, it's my approximation of a Wessex dialect of Middle English. The modern translation of the lyric is actually rendered usually as... Summer has come, loudly sing cuckoo. The seed is growing, the meadow is blooming, and the wood is coming into leaf. Sing cuckoo! The ewe is bleeding after her lamb. The cow is lowing after her calf. The bullock is prancing, the billy goat farting. Sing merrily, cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. You sing well, cuckoo. Never stop now. That's right, farting goats. Listeners to episode two will recall a curious parallel to the farting goats ridden by witches flying to the Walpurgisnacht Sabbath from Goethe's Faust. Uh, apparently this is an issue with goats, one experienced by the young character Asher in the celebrated 2017 YouTube video, Goat Fart Scares Kid. The gassiness of goats, however, is no laughing matter when experienced en masse. Uh, evidence of this is provided by a November 2015 report in the Daily Mail describing an unfortunate incident with a Singapore Airlines flight under the headline, Flatulence from 2,186 goats forced plane to make emergency landing after gas sets off smoke alarms.
Of course, it's not flatulent goats, bleeding ewes, or prancing bullocks we're focusing on in this show, but rather the cuckoo, which, perhaps outdone only by the owl or raven, may be the avian with the greatest wealth of folkloric associations. As a migratory bird returning annually with the warmer weather, the sound of the cuckoo's call became a significant herald of the coming of summer, as we've seen in our song. In different regions of Europe, the cuckoo's first call might be heard at different times. In England, it's said the bird sings from St. Tibertius Day on the 14th of April to St. John's Day, 24th of June. And in Wales, it's supposed to be unlucky to hear the bird before April 6th. Different towns in England have fixed traditional dates uh, for Cuckoo Day, sometimes celebrated by a cuckoo fair, including the town of Marsden in West Yorkshire, where legend has it the villagers attempted to once build a tower around the bird's nest to prolong its stay. There is a great significance laid upon the cuckoo's call in terms of prognostication. Uh, an 1852 edition of London's The Gentleman's Magazine, which I have provided our reader, Wilkinson, describes what the bird call may signify. The number of times he is heard indicates how long the person hearing it will live, or, if a maiden, how long it will be ere she be married. Now the Swedish lasses have found out the secret of this. If the cuckoo cries oftener than ten times, then they say he sits on a bewitched bough, and that young ladies need not heed his prediction. Ingenious. So, one's fortune can also be determined by actions taken upon hearing this initial call. Uh, Turning whatever coins you may have in your pocket at that moment is said to ensure prosperity, and wishes made for good fortune at that time are also particularly efficacious. An April 1873 entry in the periodical Long Ago, a Journal of Popular Antiquities, describes a peculiar ritual to be undertaken after turning one's money or making a wish. When you hear the cuckoo for the first time, you must sit down on the ground and pull off your shoe and stocking from the left foot. Look closely between your great toe and its neighbor. There you will find a hair, the same length and color as that of your husband or wife-to-be. Huh. Well, that does raise some questions and images. Uh, A little music to move it forward here. popular folk song usually called the cuckoo or the cuckoo bird and found in variations on both sides of the Atlantic uh, can be dated to at least around 1800. It uh, usually references the bird's role as a herald saying the more he cries cuckoo the summer is nigh and 
Also, nearly all versions comment on the theme of romantic inconstancy. The grave, it will rot you and bring you to dust, for a false-hearted lover no maiden can trust. They'll court you and kiss you and vow they'll be true, and the very next moment they'll bid you adieu. A bit grim, but as the song says, the cuckoo tells us no lies. While the bird's disappearance in late summer may suggest this theme of infidelity, there's another odd clue to the source of this association. In some British versions of the song, the bird sucks little bird's eggs to make her voice clear. What on earth could that mean? Or where does it come from? Well, sadly, from an ugly ornithological reality. The cuckoo, you see, is what's known as a brood parasite, meaning it lays its eggs in the nests of other birds. But it doesn't stop there. The mother cuckoo may destroy the native eggs of the nest to ensure uh, more food for its offspring. And that action in the folk imagination would be confused with eating the eggs or sucking them out. And it's not just the mother who does so. Newborn cuckoos uh, also play their own evil role. Uh, I was uh, pleased to find a suitably dramatic description of the hatchlings in the nest of an innocent hedge sparrow. It's from uh, On Nature's Trail, a wonder book of the wild written in 1912. This bird, this cuckoo, was objectionable to behold. A jellyfied lump with a mouth, a sort of warty, distorted, gnome-like mass. Till then, the new parasite had shown much less signs of life than the average slug. Suddenly, however, it was as if life had been pumped into it with a bicycle pump. It was not so much that it lived as that it twitched. At the end of the first convulsion, the horror fell back and became a jelly again. And one of the eggs, which had partially edged to the side of the nest, rolled over into the little hollow which the young cuckoo had in the small of his back. Apparently this hollow was there for a purpose. That which followed was amazing. No sooner had the egg rolled into said hollow than the budding parasite went utterly and entirely mad. It was an astonishing thing to behold, this half-dead lump of life, no more, mark you, than an hour or two old, suddenly smitten with delirium. At each twitch the egg was lifted and jerked and pushed and chucked higher and higher. At last, when the young maniac seemed on the point of bursting, came one final spasm. It stood up. In truth it did, stood up on the very edge of the nest and waved its stumps, which were all it had as of yet to call wings. It gave one huge writhing heave. The egg fell to the ground with a tiny crash. The hedge sparrows screamed, and the horror toppled back headlong into the nest and lay as one dead. Bravo. So... There we have our 
little pretty bird, as the song would have it, uh, is more of a monstrous thing from a horror or science fiction movie. And in fact, the bird's behavior has inspired a novel in this genre, The Midwitch Cuckoos by John Wyndham, who also wrote the science fiction classic The Day of the Triffids. Uh, it was not particularly lauded when it was published in 1957, but in 1960, it was turned into the classic film Village of the Damned, and one remade with less success in 1995 by John Carpenter. The trailer lays out the premise. Science fiction has never imagined so strange or terrifying a story as that of the village of Midwich, England, cut off from life as we know it by some mysterious force. And later, at one and the same time, a child was born to every woman in the village. Using Earth, in a sense, as their nest, these cuckoo children, as they're described in the novel, are born after an abbreviated gestation. And like the cuckoo, which is said to mature at an accelerated rate in order to overcome its step-siblings, the uh, children soon acquire intelligence and skills well beyond their years, including psychokinetic powers suggesting there's nothing you can do to stop us interestingly uh the film produced in england was uh originally to have been produced by mgm but it was shelved due to the protests of religious groups objecting to the film's sinister portrayal of virgin birth the cuckoo as metaphor has also been applied to cloning in a science fiction context as uh, in the Stepford Cuckoos, uh, clone sisters from Marvel's uh, new X-Men series. And uh, of course, it's also akin to the folklore of the Changeling, a topic we'll probably get into uh, something deserving of its own show. In any case, uh, this is hardly the end of the Cuckoos folkloric associations. It's irregularity in nesting, having offspring with another bird other than its mate has uh... excuse me oh sorry sir i was trying to get my notes in order for the uh quote you know my mic picks up that sort of thing i do apologize i think i got them all out together now if you'd like to begin again i'm still recording well if you'd like to start from another take Start where you left off, about the bird having offspring. If you have something to say about the suit, just say it. Oh, but it was quite unintentional with I really the don't respond well to passive-aggressive behavior. The suit arrived two weeks ago, and you didn't put it on until today. Yes. Uh, now it's really... Exquisite workmanship, of course, but I uh, suppose perhaps, well, with the hat at least, the tassels do tend to swing a bit as I dip my head to read, you know. Their to-and-fro action, the distraction factor. Take off the hat. Get rid of it. We can't have distractions. I really didn't want to create a scene. The fumbling honestly, nothing was intentional. A mistake, pure and simple, yes. A rather embarrassing one at that. Nothing means anything because accidents happen in an accidental universe. Uh, you've removed the hat, 
the cause of our problems. It will be fine. I'll edit it out. It never happened. Oh, I do appreciate. It takes some extra work. Consider it gone. Gone from the world. No one will ever hear it. I give you my word. Uh, thank you. I... Starting over. In any case, this is hardly the end of the Cuckoo's Folkloric Associations. It's irregularity in nesting, uh, metaphorically having offspring with the bird other than its mate, has been a historic symbol of infidelity. In particular, it is a source of the word cuckold, which for any particularly sheltered listeners refers to a male whose partner is cheating on him. The term dates to the 13th century, and up until the early modern period, cuckoldry seems to have been a source of particular amusement to various wits and writers. Uh, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Moliere, and uh, Rabelais all had fun at their expense. You'll even see cuckoldry alluded to in painting. Uh, the visual symbol for this would be two fingers raised like horns above someone's head, the same gesture you doubtless uh, applied to a friend's head during a photo snap somewhere in junior high, and identical to that symbol, a roguish uh, Italian prime minister, Silvio Berlusconi, uh, flashed over the head of the Spanish foreign minister in a 2002 photograph. I'll try to find that. I'll put that online too. But the painting, uh, 1580, uh, Flemish artist Francois Bunel, uh, painted a performer making this gesture behind the head of a fellow comedian in a painting called Actors of the Commedia dell'Arte. Uh, you'll also find uh, literal horns drawn on characters in satiric English uh, broadsides distributed for the public's amusement, and I'll put some of those on the website along with a link to the painting mentioned and other things, many, many other things. The origin of uh, this gesture relates to a now archaic uh, expression for a cuckold as one who is wearing the horns. While it's no longer used in English, you can find similar expressions in French, German, Italian, Greek, and Spanish, so it was clearly widespread. Uh, there's a lot of debate about the connection between horns and cuckoldry. Horns in folklore have a well-known connection to sexuality and uh, in Christian culture, thereby the devil, but the connection is more of a what of male conquest and virility rather than the loss and weakness associated with cuckoldry. While some writers are content uh, to relate wearing the horns to this vague sexual association, I believe a much better clue lies in the German word for cuckold, which is uh, handrei, meaning rooster deer. Here it's going to get a little strange, but. That's what you tuned in for, I think. Uh, so centuries ago, farmers discovered that a castrated animal was more docile and easier to handle. And in the case of roosters, the bird would grow fatter, producing better tasting meat. Now, to easily tell those birds, the castrated birds, apart, a curious practice evolved whereby the spurs from their legs, no longer needed for fighting in these docile birds were cut off and grafted onto the bird's comb where they grew into something resembling horns. Adding insult to injury in this way and seeing the impotent birds proudly strutting about the farmyard with foppishly showy horns absent in the more 
virile birds. Uh, well, it must have been very amusing to our rough-humored ancestors, enough so at least to work its way into the language as an expression for human cuckoldry. But back to our original bird, the cuckoo. So, what about the cuckoo's association with madness? Madness. Well, it's generally understood that the cluelessness of the cuckold, as well as the bird's rather simplistic, monotonous call, uh, both suggested feeble-mindedness to people and then by extension actual insanity. And the clocks. The uh, cuckoo's role as a seasonal marker of time may have suggested its use in timekeeping devices, but uh, probably the simplicity of its call, uh, which would lend itself to easy reproduction via pipes and bellows, was another factor. Um, we have documents uh, depicting the cuckoo clock or designs for the clock uh, from as early as 1629, but it really wasn't until the mid-1700s uh, that artisans in the Black Forest really uh, honed their craft and started an industry in these things. Um, the region is still famous for its clock souvenirs, and sort of cuckoo clock tourism has led to the creation of a cuckoo clock museum in the area, which is housed in a building transformed into, well, of course, the world's largest cuckoo clock, a source of amusement to the tourist easily amused. Cuckoo, come heraus! Says cuckoo, come out. He came out. Welcome to the interior of the world's biggest cuckoo clock. But enough history of these this not particularly horror-related clocks. We'll leave that to the uh, animatronic tour guide. Now, the cuckoo clock, however, occasionally does include other mechanized figures, uh, woodchoppers, uh, leaping deer, uh, peasants hoisting beer mugs, uh, and all of these are collectively called uh, automata, and uh, in horology, or the science of uh, clock making, the cuckoo clock is a particularly simple example of a category called automaton clocks. And here is where we return to horror. As uh, clocks measure the moments of our ever-dwindling mortality, uh, the figure of the Grim Reaper, uh, skulls, skeletons, they're often uh, among the automata featured. Uh, sometimes these can take the shape of a small domestic clock or watch, such as uh, Mary Queen of Scots' famous skull watch, or uh, the macabre uh, clock featured both in the original 1922 version of uh, Nosferatu and the particularly sumptuous model uh, used by Werner Herzog in the 1979 remake. Uh, 
another clip you can find on the website. But the figure of death also appears in public settings, uh, such as the Czech town of Havlíčku Brod. Uh, there, under the clock in the town square, stands a skeleton in a vaulted niche. Every hour on the hour, the skeleton shakes a bell gripped in its hand, and its jaw moves as if to speak the words on the inscription on his scythe, which, translated from Latin, says, You will not know the hour. Of one's death, naturally. Now, legend has it that this uh, mechanized skeleton was a 17th century replacement for a real skeleton formerly hanging there, the remains of a town watchman discovered in a plan to open the city gates to the enemy in exchange for a few coins. The enraged citizenry are said to have hurled him from the heights of the watchtower and, as further indignity and warning to others, displayed his corpse for years in the niche now occupied by the clockwork figure. More famous is the astronomical clock on Prague's Old Town Hall, one of the city's major tourist attractions. Along with the rotating celestial bodies, the clock is equipped with uh, automata representing the apostles, uh, allegorical representations of deadly sins and death, who beats a drum and nods his head because, yes, all must die. There is also a grim legend attached to this clock. The clockmaker, it said, had his eyes gouged out by the king, who feared he might one day make a clock to rival the city's own. The clockmaker's revenge was more grisly still. He's said to have climbed inside the clock tower and thrown himself into the teeth of the grinding gears, killing himself, but also spitefully jamming the king's pride and joy at least until some Johnny-come-lately came along and fixed it up. We needn't question all these details, whether they are factual, because it's at least a lovely story. While the cuckoo might be a symbol of madness, madness marital madness, disgrace, and the infidelity of fickle lovers, can't its role as a marker of our passing seasons also make it a symbol of death? In 1966, the avant folk band The Fugs thought so, uh, combining the pretty bird beloved by folk singers with a warning to live for the day in their cheery dirge, Carpe Diem. As with all things, our third episode ends with death. I'd like to thank Wilkinson for indulging us with his presence and reading our quoted material. Glad to be of service. We're done now, so you can put the hat back on. Yes, of course. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and will continue listening to future episodes. Shows are uploaded on Mondays every other week. The show is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and YouTube, pretty much everywhere you might want to find it. Please do like and comment where you can. 
The incorrigibly curious can also visit the website Bone and Sickle, all one word, where you can find show notes, images, and video of topics mentioned in this podcast. You'll also find links to social media pages, and there is a Patreon link where you can donate to support this uh, uncalled-for undertaking. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of gifts and incentives, including exclusive access to extra bits of the podcast. I would love to get your comments on what you liked, uh, questions you had, suggestions, topics, uh, or anything else, really. Uh, The show is written and produced by me, Al Reitnauer. Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thanks so much for listening.